course, I was down there uh, just playing uh, regular blackjack. You know, I was, I was winning. I was also, uh, it was a real small casino, and the, uh, the owner was from Philadelphia, and his name was Archie, and he kind of took a liking to me. I was playing blackjack uh, at night there, and I was playing golf with him during the day. I was winning, but it wasn't a ridiculous amount. I think I was up uh, a little less than 30000 and I, it was like my sixth day there, and I was staying a week. And we would have dinner at night and all this stuff, and I, you know, whatever. I was getting a little uh, awkward. I was actually happy that the trip was coming to an end. That's Tommy Highland. Tommy started counting cards in the 70s, and he's lasted a long time in a profession that can burn people out quickly. He's talking about a time he was playing in St. Kitts, and as he says, things with this casino owner were getting awkward. The obvious tension is that casino owners shed no tears for the helpless losers that walk through their doors. The tears are reserved for the winners. Let's listen to Tommy tell the rest of the story. He reaches in the drawer, and in his one hand he's got papers, and after he reaches in the drawer, on the other hand he's got a gun, he's pointing at me, and he starts reading, and it was a Griffin report on me. He had, uh, I guess he gotten suspicious uh, of uh, how I was winning. So anyway, he must have uh, called Griffin and they sent this uh, fax back or whatever and he started reading from it. He says, uh, you know, Thomas Highland, also known as such and such, uh, card counter, head of Highland count team or whatever. And he says, uh, he's got the gun point at me. He says, I want my money back. And I said, hey, Archie, I said, uh, I'm sorry. I said, I won that money uh, fair and square. I said, uh, and you know, it's it's not all my money. I said it's, it's some of it's uh, people that uh, invested in me. I said I can I can't uh, give you any of that money back. I said it's uh, I said I want it honestly. I want it fair and square. And he says you're not giving my uh, giving me my money back. And I said no. Nah. I said I can't. I said you do whatever you have to do. I said I can't give you the money back. And he gets up from behind his desk and he says he starts uh, he pushes me out the door. And he starts walking me down this narrow, dark path, and he's prodding me in the back uh, with his gun. And I said, uh, Archie, I changed my mind. I said, you can have your uh, money back. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and light and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is David and Goliath, part one. In the 1970s and 80s, a stream of gamblers used the newly available electronics to try to beat casino games. These were things like computers to count cards, or camera systems to spy dealer hole cards. The most prolific tinkerer working on these devices was a Silicon Valley engineer named Keith Taft. Over two decades, Taft and his family built a number of devices that were sometimes genius, sometimes a little too complicated to actually work, but always very ambitious. Taft named his inventions with references to his cultural markers. And since he was religious, one of the blackjack computers was named David. He could have picked from a number of biblical stories, but Taft picked David and Goliath and drew a big red circle around the unlikely hero that slays the overconfident bully. This episode is about the underdogs that Keith Taft had in mind. The people we'll hear from played blackjack when Taft was building his machines. 
In fact, some of them even played with Keith's computers. But more importantly, they are the underdogs from the metaphor. They relied on intelligence to flip the odds, use the hubris of their opponents as an advantage, and maybe they also became unexpected heroes. I realize we're talking about blackjack players, so the word hero will seem preposterous, but just stick with me and let's see where it goes. In a moment, you'll hear from Daryl Purpose. He's a member of the Blackjack Hall of Fame, and there was also a time when he may have been the most notorious card counter in America. But Daryl is what I'm talking about when I say unexpected. I barely graduated from high school. I was a horrible student. And of course, we think about that as the only way to measure your intelligence, whether it be uh, emotional or uh, informational. And, uh, you know, your ability to do things and get by in the world. I mean, it's, it's really, isn't it measured by your report card? So, you know, looking back on that whole thing, I think of, um, you know, that I was kind of a failure. I was a failure as a person, and, and in particular in school. And so how did I go from being a failure to being pretty dang successful pretty quickly in a realm that involved a lot, you know, a lot of numbers and a lot of, uh, required a lot of intelligence and, and um, uh, you know, how, how do you explain that? Daryl has been called the fastest card counter in the world. So there has to be more to the story, right? And it turns out there is. Although now looking back at it, I realized, oh, I did pretty well on my SATs. You know, I was like 99.99, you know, on, on my SATs for math and for English. So I, I could have figured that out, but I it never, I just never did. I never, I never did think, oh, wow, I'm smart. You know, I, I got, I'm pretty smart. I never figured that out back then. I can look back now and say, oh, I was pretty smart. tried to go to college and be a guitar major. I went to a few classes and my, my left wrist kind of broke and, or was hurt and they put it in a splint and then my right wrist went and they put that in a splint, you know. I thought it was masturbation, you know, but, but it turned out there I, was, there I was, a guitar major with two splints on his hands and that's when I said, screw it. Daryl told me a story about a time that he won 350000 in Atlantic City. Then later he emailed me and said he was sorry, but he had been confused. He had only won 150000 And he was mixing this up with another time he'd won 350000 Even though Daryl has won six figures, enough times he can't keep them straight in his head, when he started, he was broke. And so when he heard about a strip club with a free breakfast... He turned the place into his own personal Denny's. And, and I went to Las Vegas and I had no money, I had no anything. I had one shirt, I remember. I had $50. I had a guitar. I rented a room for $50 and I started going to the Centerfold, which was right catty corner from the Sahara. It was called the Centerfold and they had free breakfast there. They would give you sausage, eggs, and potatoes. And you could go there every morning, like from 7.30 to 8.30 a.m., before the movie 21, and before Rain Man, the most famous card counter in the world was Ken Houston. 
He was in Sports Illustrated in 1979, which is to say that he was in Sports Illustrated when that was a big deal. Ken saw no point in the anonymity preferred by most card counters. And so he spilled trade secrets in books like Million Dollar Blackjack and The Big Player. I should mention that these were not ideas Ken had invented. So the people that taught him to play were a little annoyed. But no matter what anyone says about Houston, the reality is that he started a lot of blackjack careers. Mostly he did that through his books. But Ken personally launched Daryl's career. Here Daryl talks about testing to be on Ken Houston's team. It's only in looking back over decades that I also see um, how I had uh, somewhat of a, of a, of a gift. It, you know, when it happened, I didn't think much of it. Again, just, just very young, and they, they tested me. And um, I look back at it now, and I know that they said, okay, you're in, you're on the team, and they fired all the other counters. And again, I did not, <laughs> I did not get at the time that that meant I was uh, anything special. I did not get it. I just did what was put in front of me, and I did my best. In card counting, the actual counting is not that difficult, since a lot of the cards on the table end up canceling each other out. But when Tommy Hyland started, there weren't a lot of resources to explain things, so he initially missed this key point. We kind of thought that, uh, you know, it was too hard to keep the count yourself. You had to be some kind of uh, memory expert. I don't know what we thought, but we decided that we'd always sit at the same table and one of us would count the high cards and one would count the low, you know, compare after every round and then we'd uh, have a running count. We started out like that and uh, amazingly, we ran that $2,000 bankroll up to 8000 so we had 4000 pieces. Then somebody said that you had to wait till the, everybody got two cars. They would cancel out, and that's how you kept track. So we learned to keep uh, the count by ourselves uh, after a few months. And then we uh, we met these other two guys, and they seemed like really nice guys. They're about our age, and we decided to trust them. And they all so we all put in four thousand dollars. Now we had a sixteen thousand dollar bankroll. We play all day and night, and then we uh, like two in the morning we go to this. Uh, you know, kind of dangerous area of Atlantic City where the one guy had an apartment, we'd split the money up every night if we won or we'd, uh, if we lost, we'd, uh, you know, fix it up that way and we'd start again the next day. Tommy started his playing career in Atlantic City where the game was positive even with no counting. Just basic strategy provided a small edge. You know, this was a, this was a real, uh, you know, something you'll never see again where you get to play this many years with an advantage off the top. It was the perfect uh, storm for uh, a guy with hardly any money to get started, you know, to have an advantage uh, off the top with just basic strategy was, uh, was a pretty good uh, scenario to, you know, to build your bankroll. For as long as there have been card counters, there's been the question of whether casinos should just let them play. For a few weeks in 1979, New Jersey turned this question into an experiment. I don't think there was ever a table without a card counter on. There were only two casinos open, Resorts and Caesars. Some teams decided to play Resorts and some teams decided to play Caesars. We, we played at Resorts. There was at least one card counter on every table. Usually there was more than one. You know, it was just everybody running around. As soon as the count would go negative, uh, the whole table would empty it out and then uh and the regular people would follow the uh card counter spets it was pretty uh comical the whole thing the experiment lasted uh i think 15 days before they called it off and they started letting the uh, uh, counters get barred again the next voice you'll hear is mark billings 
Mark started playing in the early 80s, and he says that his aptitude for counting cards included an ability to quickly add numbers in his head, and also he knew a little something about misdirection. Um, I had been a magician when I was a kid, and so when you're a magician, you kind of, when you're doing a trick, you need to know where the victim's brain is, you know, the person for whom you're doing the trick, you kind of have to know where they're at at different stages of the trick in order for it to work properly. And so that was very, very helpful in terms of, you know, sitting down and knowing where the dealer was and what her, you know, what her mindset was and the pit bosses and all that stuff. So it was a perfect fit. I had never played in a casino before never once i had no interest in it It made no you know it makes no sense to me why anybody would go into a casino and play a game where if you play long enough you're guaranteed to lose right so i didn't know what it would be like so when we practiced we thought that the dealers would be just blazingly fast like so fast you could barely keep up so we practiced for like six weeks with flashcards and dealing as fast as we could and all that stuff when we finally went to vegas for the first time it was like a joke because it was so much slower than what we were doing at home richard munchkin had a different plan to master counting you know, I was obsessed with gambling from the time I was about 15. I read everything I could get my hands on, you know, about all forms of gambling. You know, Scarney's Complete Guide to Gambling, you know, Ed Silverstang's Playboy's Book of Games, you know. So I was convinced that blackjack was real, that you could make money counting cards. So, uh, you know, my plan was I'm going to get a job as a dealer first. And I'll be able to practice counting cards while I'm dealing eight hours a day. What better way, right? Richard was starting the slow grind up from small stakes when he had a fateful encounter with a future billionaire named Alan Woods. When I was learning and dealing, I was just betting red chips. So, you know, five to 15 or something like that uh, on single deck games. And then I met a guy named Alan Woods, who's in my book, Gambling Wizards. And Alan was in town with a blackjack team. Uh, He was from Australia. And after getting to know him, he offered me and two of my friends, who were other backgammon players, and he said, why are you playing, you know, for such small stakes? And I said, well, we don't have a bankroll. You know, we're, we're just trying to build up our bankroll. He said, well, how about I put up $20,000 and you guys play for me and you play until you double the bankroll and then we'll split it 60, 40, 60 for him, 40 for us. I said, you've known us a week and you're going to give us $20,000 to go out and gamble with and let you know how we do. And he reached in his coat and he pulled out $20,000 and he slid it across the table to me. This somewhat random encounter with Alan Woods probably set Richard's life down a different path. Not only did Alan stake Richard's team to their first bankroll, but Alan later put Richard onto a game in Korea that netted over a million dollars. And so that might seem like a very fluky thing, except that it might not be luck. Richard is a connector. He's a node for a lot of social networks. And this connector ability shows up throughout his life. He wrote a book called Gambling Wizards, where he interviewed famous gamblers like the sports better Billy Walters, the founder of Pinnacle Sports, Stanley Thompson, and the poker player Doyle Brunson. Richard also co-hosts the podcast Gambling with an Edge, 
where he's interviewed hundreds of Advantage players. So a seemingly lucky encounter with Alan Woods, who would go on to become one of the world's most successful horse bettors, probably involved a little good fortune, but it was also something that happened because Richard is who he is. It's worth mentioning that the 20000 Alan Woods threw on the table would be about fifty or 60000 today. And it's not just the value of money that's changed. The entire world these guys played in is mostly gone. I think knowing a little more about this world might help us understand the era. First of all, the joints were a lot smaller. A lot, lot smaller. If you go into Seether's Palace... It was just that one pit that you walk into through the main doors with the, that's kind of round. That was it. The food was incredibly cheap. It was cheaper to eat out than it was to cook for yourself at home. If you lived here, it had a very much a small town feel. You knew people at the places that you went. And working in the pit, the dealers' names, they knew you. So it was just a much friendlier place. It was a much looser place. They weren't trying to squeeze every nickel out of everything. You know, the pit boss could just give you a ticket to go eat, and they did it very freely. The slot machines were a lot louder back then because you had to feed coins into them. And every time you hit a payoff, the coins would clank down into the tray. So there was that constant clatter and clang of coins going in and coming out of slot machines. So it was much louder than it, than it is today. You know, it was a bit rougher. It was dirtier. There were a lot of hookers. It was not a family-friendly place by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I used to love the uh, dunes. I mean, I love I love the that restaurant at the dunes, the Sultan's Table. Uh, you know, the Sands. Uh, I remember that restaurant, the Regency Room. The dunes was probably my, the casino. I missed the uh, missed the most. I used to play golf on that golf course. Uh, you know, I thought that was, and I played a lot. Of, I got a lot of hours in at the dunes. I remember that. That's where the Bellagio is now. The dunes was uh, was really nice. They had a pretty good game. The there was a place called the Marina, which was where the MGM is, the new MGM, not the old MGM. Back then when I started, the MGM is now Bally's, and that's the one that caught fire. That's the one that actually caught on fire, and I think it was November 1980, something like that. And the marina was really good, the easy to get comps, and they had a really good steakhouse with lobster tails and stuff, so that was, pretty, uh, that was a pretty nice place. I ended up at a casino on the Strip called the Castaways, which was where uh, the Mirage sits today, we had single-deck games. And because of that, I think we had more than any other single-deck games on the Strip. And because of that, every card counter in the world came through there. Uh, plus, it was a really convenient place. It had a really big parking lot. You could park right near the door. The food was really cheap. You know, so just everybody in the world came to that joint. And I got to meet lots of people working there. And I think my favorite place was probably the Castaways. Castaways is roughly where the Mirage is now, I think. I think that's where it was. And it was more of a locals place. And, you know, it was a very Western-themed joint, you know. The, the girls all wore, you know, jeans. And they had, like, six shooters with belts and stuff like that. And had a really good single-deck game. And, you know, if you were careful, you could go one to three, like, in, you know, in quarters and 
when you card count, you have to spread your bets from small bets to large bets. And so you can bet from like 25 to 75 a hand without really getting a whole lot of attention there. That was really my favorite place. The approximate cause of the demolition of the old joints was progress. Many of the casinos had been built in the 50s, and by the 80s, there was a sense that the old hotels were holding Las Vegas back. But the proximate cause of the destruction of the old places was Steve Wynn. He replaced Castaways with the Mirage, the Bellagio took the place of the Dunes, and the Desert Inn came down to make way for the Wynn and Encore. Daryl was counting cards when Steve Wynn could still be seen in the pit at the Golden Nugget. I counted cards under uh, Steve Wynn's nose. He was the uh, he was just in the in the floor on the floor there. I think it was the Golden Nugget, and um, you know, and you know, he kind of they were they were on top of things pretty much. I mean, he or at least he was certainly you know he would know that you were counting. He would understand that you weren't winning that much. You know, I was. I might have been playing five to twenty dollars at the time. I think it was like before the before I was a member of the team. The small town feel Richard mentioned had at least one major drawback for card counters. They would just bar you. They would tell you you can't play anymore. And that was it. There was no photograph. There was no, you know, flyer sent around to anybody. But, you know, the problem was they just got to know your face and there was nowhere else to play. You know, there was Nevada. And then in 1978 or 9, um, Atlantic City opened. But that was it. This was also the heyday of boxing in Las Vegas. Between 1980 and 82, the city hosted three separate fights with attendance of roughly 30,000. To put that in perspective, the Mayweather-McGregor fight was just 15,000. We actually went to see the Larry Holmes and Jerry Cooney fight at Caesars, and there would be this gigantic amount of action when there was a fight in town. And the thing about that is, of course, everybody was betting this huge amount of money so you could get away with it, right? You weren't standing out by betting 500 or 1,000 a hand. Everybody was betting that much. So yeah, those were those were great times. It will be hard for people today to understand how big this Holmes-Cooney fight was. Larry Holmes entered the fight undefeated with 29 knockouts. Two years earlier, he had dominated an aging Muhammad Ali in a fight that also took place at Caesars. And the marketing for Holmes-Cooney was either subtly racist or blatantly racist, depending on your perspective. Jerry Cooney was to be the great white hope. And also, Holmes Cooney didn't happen in an arena. The fight was outside in June. It was 100 degrees at 8 p.m. Despite the disgusting heat, Holmes Cooney still holds the record for the largest attendance of a Vegas fight. It really was a monster event for the town, and Tommy was on hand for the action. I remember this one fight. I think it was the Holmes Cooney fight. I think we had it. We had a team of like twenty or twenty-four, and like we'll say it was twenty, and I think nineteen people on the trip won, and you know it was something like four hundred thousand. Uh, it was really remarkable at the time because it was way bigger than our biggest win. I do remember that almost every single person on the trip won, which is it's crazy for a you know a three or four day trip for that many people to win. You know, it should be more like you know thirteen out of twenty daryl says that looking for times when the casino will be flush is still a good strategy the cover that's provided by uh, a busy casino is is uh, usually wins the day and that's usually when you when you want to be there i mean one of the uh ways we think about it you know to this day 
is if a casino is making money, we can make money. We make so much money that the casino is in trouble or losing money. They're not going to let us keep playing. Today, if you want a casino comp, you go to the Players Club and give them your driver's license. They give you a plastic card. And then that card is your unique ID for an extensive tracking system attached to every machine and every table game where your comps are calculated down to the penny. But the bean counting wasn't always a thing. My favorite memories are the memories of being out with the team, usually at some big comped meal. And and back then, when you got a comp, it was just a comp. There was no dollar limit on it. It just, you know, you're comped, period. Whatever you order, you order. I remember being on a play up at either Harvey's or Harrah's Lake Tahoe, and they have this really nice restaurant up on the top. And we had had a big play. We won a lot of money. And so, and you know, we used to do these things, which really were not very smart, but we would do them anyway, where the whole team would go have this big comp dinner in a casino where we just won a bunch of money, which is, you know, people did get in trouble for doing that because occasionally pit bosses would come in and see everybody together and now your cover is blown. But anyway, I, I remember being at this big dinner up at this beautiful restaurant there overlooking Lake Tahoe with the sunset. And at one point, somebody ordered another bottle of wine. The mater d' came over and he said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to call down to the pit to approve this. You know, he said, why? And he said, well, you've already spent $3,000 on wine. So it, they called down and it got approved. But the bill for that dinner was probably $5,000 or something. And this is mid-80s. So today, who knows what that would be? $15,000? I don't know. Mark said that he and his teammates tried to avoid this risk, that the comp dinner might blow their cover. Most of what we did back then, if we did play together, we couldn't know each other. So we wouldn't do comp meals together. That would be a really bad idea. You know, you have two people at the table, one guy who's counting and signaling and another guy betting big. And then later on, the casino sees those two guys having dinner together. No, 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 no bueno. No good. You don't, you don't want to do that. Current day card counters face the potential that earning the comps will also alert the casino to their identity. But Tommy said casinos didn't always care about that sort of thing. You know, back then there was none of this stuff about, uh, you, you know, ID, ID and uh, showing ID. Even for checking in the rooms, you didn't need any kind of ID. You just uh, gave your name. And, and so you'd just get rated under some name. And if they uh, didn't pick you off as a card counter, you would get, you know, all these nice comps. You know, and I wasn't even one of the one of the uh, guys that you know that I knew that got comped a lot. I didn't really care that much about comps. Uh, they were nice, but I was more interested in just uh, playing uh, hard, and getting the money. Some people really liked these comps. They had uh, girlfriends and wives they wanted to uh, take to these nice dinners, and I couldn't stand to be sitting through these uh, two and three hour dinners. Uh, but I, you know, I did it on occasion. But I, you know, I had lots and lots of comps. One time, I remember at the Trump Plaza, I had a, uh, a suite with two floors on it. You know, and an upstairs. You know, and a big piano and a pool, a private pool in the suite. Yeah, you know, we have ridiculous, uh, ridiculously luxurious uh, uh, accommodations. Sometimes we got airfare comps. You know, we got big dinners. Uh, you know, ordering plenty of bottles of Dom Perignon to the rooms and things like that. It's possible to get the wrong impression if you hear that these guys were betting thousands of dollars in the casino and then following that up with opulent experiences on the casino's dime. If you're getting the sense that these guys were ballers, they definitely were not ballers. 
So I went to Las Vegas and, you know, I met these other blackjack players, these uh, college dropouts uh, who were good at math and were just total nerds. And most of them were just not very adult-like. We were all uh, just total nerds. Like, you know, we would have a party and we would hope that, you know, somebody had a sister so there could be a female at the party that would be great although we none, none of us would know what to do with that daryl told me that he grew up in a home with no male role models it was just his mom and his sisters then he became a card counter and he says the only normal person he knew was richard munchkin when daryl got hooked up with ken houston it was an odd couple where one guy knew very little about the world and the other guy knew a little too much about the world. I spent the summer of 1979 in a 300-square-foot uh, condo with Ken. We lived there on the boardwalk. He had an, he had issues with alcohol and other and, and drugs, and and uh, I was just trying to lose weight. My you know like my whole life. I'm thin now, but uh, at the time. And so for so many years, I was just trying to lose weight. And um, so we made a bet that I wouldn't eat anything and he wouldn't drink anything. And um, the, the loser had to buy the winner a hooker. And what he didn't know at the time was that I was a virgin. I'd, I'd been traveling around the world as a globe, a globe hopping professional blackjack player. And I had, I had never had a lover. And in fact, I lost my virginity in that 300 square foot condo to a hooker that Ken had to buy me. These young card counters were legally adults and they were making money, but maybe they weren't exactly grownups. One of the first teams that I was on, they had rented a house near Samstown and there were four or five of the team members all living in this house. I remember at one point, uh, Tommy Hylance was sleeping in the bathtub. Yeah, you know, it was like college dorm life, uh, right? Five guys in a in a house by, you know, as bachelors with, you know, some a, a few pieces of mismatched furniture and old pizza boxes. And I, I had already, because I had been a dealer and I had already been making some money prior, I had already bought a condo. So I, I had my own place at that point already. But all our team meetings were there at the team house. And yeah, as I say, it was, uh, it was bachelor living. We had this pretty big rancher with uh, like a fair amount of bedrooms. And there was four, four or five, I think it was either four or five of us. And we, uh, we didn't want to waste any money on furniture. So all we had was a couch and a TV. I mean, I didn't have a, a mattress. I, I think I had a sleeping bag, and uh, none of the windows had. Uh, we didn't even want to spend money on curtains. Uh, all, so I slept in the bathroom where the windows were tinted. I slept. I didn't sleep in the bathtub. I slept on the floor of the bathroom uh, because that had the uh, you know the darkened windows, so I could uh, not as much light came in. We, we, I think we were all fairly low on money at the time, and we we didn't want to uh, spend any of the precious money. Uh, out of the bankroll for uh, furniture or curtains or, you know, any, any extravagancies like that. The seemingly odd relationship with money, where the guys are making big bets at the tables, but their lifestyles are, let's just say, modest, that's the nature of the beast. Here's Mark again. Your bankroll is sort of like, if you are a carpenter, that's your hammer and your nails and your wrenches. Those are your tools. And I mean, you make money with your money. So any money you spend on something like a car 
or curtains or pots and pans is money that you can no longer back up your bets with. And so that's the mentality. Yeah. I mean, you can't imagine how cheap these people are. It's just that these people, I mean, I was one of them, right? Another thing I think people don't understand is you could go out and play exactly properly for two or three months at a time and lose. There was always that lingering in the background, you know, and once you're, once you're busted out, you're busted out. Once you're at the bottom, you bottom out, you know? So it was actually possible. I mean, you could, you could go broke. I mean, theoretically, if you do Kelly breading properly, you never go broke, but you could actually go down so far that you could no longer really bet enough to make a living at it. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't have a top bet of $10 and make a living as a card counter. I mean, you, at some point you have to eat. Most serious gamblers use some form of Kelly betting to size their bets. Kelly betting is basically adjusting your wager relative to the size of your advantage. It's an optimization, and the thing it's optimizing is bankroll growth. But the thing it's not optimizing is your ability to sleep at night. In fact, one consistent criticism of Kelly betting is that by design, it is a roller coaster. You know, I remember some uh, some horrible losses, too. I remember I... I could never win at the frontier. I lost, I think I lost 80 or 90,000 there two trips in a row, uh, you know, with the, with the computer or something. Yeah, it was amazing. So yeah, you have huge, uh, huge swings. Uh, sometimes they, these, uh, these wins can come at the best times when you're down really low and, uh, you know, you, you all of a sudden you have some big win. And then sometimes these losses can come at the absolutely most inopportune time when you're, when you just been losing and losing and you finally got a really good situation and you just take another big loss. You really have to be able to uh, roll with the punches and bet according to your bank course. A lot of blackjack players get burned out from the heat and others get just burned out from the swings. Richard actually did burn out just as his career was getting started. He played for 160 hours in the negative while his team was being staked by Alan Woods. It was enough for him to give up on blackjack. You know, you have imposter syndrome. I must not be playing correctly. I'm fooling myself because I, I must not be doing this right or I couldn't lose for this long. Number two, I'm letting down my teammates is a huge part of it. And I'm letting down the investor. He's, you know, I'm losing all this money that belongs to Alan. You know, I felt horrible about that. You know, we didn't have uh, the ability to run computer simulations back then. So, yeah, I was like, if this really works, how long is it supposed to take? Aren't I supposed to win eventually? In part two... We're going to hear how Richard came back to Blackjack and what he did to avoid long losing streaks. But there's another challenge for card counters, and it's that because almost no one understands what you do, it can be isolating. Imagine how many times you have to tell someone what you do for a living, and then imagine how that conversation will go when the person you're talking to does not understand what you have to say. You know, often I wouldn't tell people. Uh, you know, I remember when my son was in kindergarten or first grade, he came home one day and he said, oh, the teacher asked what you do for a living. And I said, what did you say? And he said, I told her you play blackjack. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, if they ask again, just tell them I'm a writer. Because, yeah, yeah, people don't get it. I mean, it did help when it helped a little bit when Rain Man came out. Uh, but even that, then they thought you had to be autistic. 
Um, but when the movie 21 came out, that helped a great deal. Suddenly everybody understood, oh, yeah, it's like those MIT guys. I, I would try and avoid the subject if possible, you know, about if I was playing, if like I got in a uh, a golf tour and got paired with somebody and then the subject came up about what you did for a living, I said I played blackjack, then the whole rest of the round would be questions about it, you know. So I would, I would try and avoid the subject, but every situation was different. I remember once uh, me and one of my teammates, we were going to rent this house in Brigantine, which is uh, by Atlantic City. You know, we were, it was going to be a house where we, uh, where a bunch of our team uh, stayed there at various times during the week or weekends and, you know, stayed for a couple of days and then went home. And uh, so we we're running this house and this, I said, to, you know, I said to my teammate, I said, we're going to have to uh, tell this guy what we do. So I got this other guy from the golf course to say we work for him. And he, we had his business card and uh, somehow he sold a, uh, he, he, they sold transformers or something. And so uh, that's what the card said. We gave the guy our prospective uh, landlord. We gave him the business card and all this stuff. And so he asked a bunch of questions about where from, blah, blah, blah. And then the, his wife says, uh, by the way, what's a transformer? And I had no idea. I had no idea what it was. Yeah, that was a, that was kind of a situation where I didn't, I wasn't prepared too well when that somebody asked me what I did for a living. We have to pause for now. But when we come back in part two, we're going to hear about the many assorted ways these guys got edges in the casino. Slot machines, Keno. I mean, every single game in the casino can be beat under the right conditions. Now, those conditions may be very rare and it may be very hard to find what you need to beat, you know, say Baccarat. But when the conditions are there, Baccarat can be beat. Roulette can be beat. Slot machines can be beat. Everything, everything under the right conditions can be beat. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Mark Billings, Tommy Highland, and Daryl Purpose. An extra special thanks to Richard Munchkin. I mentioned to Richard that I wanted to make this episode, and he put me in touch with all of the other guests. Also, Richard's print interviews with Tommy Highland and Keith Taft provided important background information for this episode. To get in touch with the show, you can email riskofruinpod at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at Half Kelly. A few footnotes about this episode. I said that casino owners shed no tears for helpless losers. That's a paraphrase of a line that's in the book, The Green Felt Jungle. Mark Billings is the author of the book, The Ultimate Edge, which is a fictionalized account of his experience in the 80s. It's an entertaining read, and it provided a lot of the research for this episode. Mark has also written a book about roulette, which will be released soon. There's an excellent book by William Poundstone about the history of Kelly betting. It's called Fortune's Formula, and it turns a boring mathematical concept into a legitimately interesting story. 